Before we begin today's episode, I would just like to recommend a new book which I have written titled The Poetic Edda, A Study Guide. We have discussed the famous collection of Old Norse poems known as the Poetic Edda on this podcast in many different episodes. My book, The Poetic Edda, A Study Guide, acts as an introductory study guide to this famous literary source for Norse mythology. Indeed, the Poetic Edda is a crucial source for Norse mythology, and it contains stories and myths which would have otherwise not existed if not for the preservation of the Edda. Be sure to check out the Poetic Edda Study Guide on Amazon.com or via the link in the description of this episode. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. The Old Norse speakers of the medieval world left behind a legacy of literature, language, and myth. From the Icelandic family sagas and Old Norse death poetry, to runic inscriptions, rock carvings, and Gotlandic picture stones, evidence of the Old Norse world is present throughout Scandinavia and Iceland. But what is the significance of Old Norse? Why did the Vikings speak this language, and how does it play into the way they told stories and created their literature? Joining me to discuss this topic is Dr. John Hines, Professor of Archaeology at the School of History, Archaeology, and Religion at Cardiff University. Dr. Hines, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Old Norse was the language of the Vikings. This is the language of the the Icelandic sagas and the great oral traditions of the Vikings. But If one is to explore a brief history of this language, where did one first hear Old Norse spoken? Um, It's a very good question. The term Old Norse, of course, is our own descriptor um, for the language. Um, Interestingly, at the time, um, we know people tended to refer to themselves um, as speaking in the Danish tongue. Um, and very often we will find um, people from outside of Scandinavia, if they're referring to the Scandinavians, will use some sort of approximation um, like that um, to actually refer to them. Um, in modern Scandinavia, um, the term Norren will sometimes be used to describe the language. Um, as a Norwegian speaker, I can remember effectively being brought up um, referring to it as Gamelnorsk, as, as Old Norwegian, um, rather than um, any other uh, language. So uh, we, ha- we have to realize that, in a way, we generalize by referring to a particular language called Old Norse. Having said those things, which as an academic, I have to say to be very precise about things, of course, the Scandinavians of the Viking period had a language Um, And we can be absolutely certain that, in effect, um, they had one language which they all understood perfectly well. It would certainly have had uh, regional dialects. There were certainly other peoples living within Scandinavia. Um, The Sami, the uh, nomadic groups who spoke a very um, different language. So we do have this, this language which we now refer to using the term Old Norse. Um, We can actually trace the derivation of this language um, back over several centuries before um, the Viking period. Um, This is thanks to two particular sources of evidence. 
Um, one is the fact that all historical languages, we are able to reconstruct prior versions of them from the earliest records we've got. Languages are very, very rule-bound things, and we can very easily work out to a certain time depth at least what the changes that are effectively prehistoric, which precede what we can actually see um, must have been. Um, but the other great and valuable source for us is that from Scandinavia, we do have um, inscriptions written in the runic script in the vernacular language, in the language that was being used by the ordinary people um, in Scandinavia, uh, going back as early as the second century AD, um, so a good 600 years in effect um, before the start of the Viking period. Um, and from that, we can see um, a language that's actually changing quite a lot over the previous few centuries, starting out as a language where there is very little distinction between the form of the language that's being used in Scandinavia um, and that that we either know or would reconstruct for a lot of the rest of the Germanic-speaking areas um, of um, Northern Europe. Um, and then in a period really focusing on the 7th and the 8th centuries, it suddenly goes through a series of really quite dramatic changes within its own internal um, structure. And that, in effect, does produce the earliest forms of the language, which we would say, yeah, that's very, very like the Old Norse that we would um, that we either know or would attribute um, to the Viking period itself. How interesting. And if one is to compare Old Norse to contemporary languages of that time as well, Old English, um, to name only one, is there anything notable or different from Old Norse? And, and this is a whole other topic in entirely. But I'm curious, you know, when, when you're dealing with these older languages, say, Old English and Old Norse, just to um, contrast two, how would Old Norse speakers and, say, Old English speakers have, have been able to communicate? Would their languages, although different, have had similarities where perhaps they would have been able to somewhat understand each other? Yeah, I, I think we can, at, at the very least, be confident that the languages were similar enough in terms of their structure, in terms of the vocabulary that they inherited. So that, for instance, if we take a very straightforward word like the word for a building, a house, it would have been hus in both languages. They would have had no problem in uh, recognizing that um, but between speakers of the two different groups. Um, and as with all languages and all varieties of language, um, a lot comes down to the actual willingness and, if you like, mental agility of the people who are trying to communicate uh, with one another. We will all be very, very familiar within the very different forms of English um, that we um, use, that even within North American English, within British English, there can be dialects where a lot of people will say, I just can't understand what they're saying. From up there, whereas other people will say, "Oh no, no, you try a little bit. You can understand um, without um, too much uh, trouble." Now, I do think that by the time we get into the Viking period, by the time we get to the point that 
um, lots of Scandinavians are moving across the North Sea, attacking, eventually settling in um, England. We're talking about a language difference that is more than the difference um, between, shall we say, southern and northern dialects of English um, at the time. Um, but it's going to be a language difference that, to use a fairly good modern analogy, um, is not as great as the difference that we have now between modern English and German, where again, you would say we can see a lot of similarities in vocabulary. Um, we can recognize certain things in the way in which words are put together and so on. But effectively, you have to learn the language quite separately um, to be able to use it. So I think there's a, there, there, there is a fair amount of basic similarity there. But nonetheless, it's not, I think, the case that you would simply put a Norse speaker and an, an, an old English speaker together in the ninth century and they'd start speaking to each other um, straight away. Um, there would be processes of adaptation um, that they needed to go through. A good deal of um, study and thought has inevitably gone into this by um, uh, scholars recently, and in particular, uh, um, a colleague of mine from the University of York, Matthew Townend, um, in his very extended study of these issues, attached a considerable amount of importance to the fact that we have no stories um, of Scandinavian speakers, um, Vikings meeting Anglo-Saxons and needing recourse to interpreters to communicate um, between them. The implication seems to be that from the sources we've got of the 10th century, people generally reckon that if you've got a group of Old Norse speakers and a group of Old English speakers, um, together, they would be able to speak to one another um, effectively enough for the things that they wanted to um, communicate uh, to one another. Um, and I, I think this is really quite a, a reliable way of looking at things. But that would have been an acquired familiarity with each other's language varieties, uh, which would have been developed over a number of generations. And Old Norse has influenced. Um, quite notably, our own mother tongue, that is the English language throughout history. And I'm, I'm sure that has something yeah. to do with the Vikings having conquests and immigrating to England. Do you care to talk about that for a moment? Yes, I'm uh, very happy to uh, do so. Um, the Scandinavian influence in the English language is certainly broad, and it is also profound um, when we look at some other languages that have influenced English over the centuries, and one would think particularly of prestige languages from Europe, such as French and Italian, um, it can be quite easy to categorize a lot of the terms that have come in from those languages as representing precisely the sort of cultural um, high position that those languages held at particular uh, times so that we have French terms for cuisine, we have French terms um, for aspects of social and legal organization. Um, a lot of the more Italianate terms that are coming in will represent the high culture of the Renaissance um, from the period of the Elizabethan period um, and onwards. 
Um, when we look at the influence that Old Norse is having um, on English, we see something very, very different so that we see some of the most basic words um, within the language. Um, good Old English words, perfectly adequate Old English words, are being replaced um, by terms coming out of Norse. So, for instance, the fact that we refer to um, the common food stuff, eggs, using the word egg. In doing so, we use an Old Norse word. When we use the extremely common adjective both, both of us did that. We are using a term that has come in from Old Norse and replaced um, a quite adequate Old English word that existed. Um, the term we use for, it's a technically, grammatically, it's a plural pronoun, they, them, their. Um, that, again, is an Old Norse term that came in um, and replaced forms that began with an H, um, similar to our pronoun he, him, his, um, which we had um, before then. So it's an extremely um, elemental impact um, on the English language um, and something which must reflect um, a very intimate intermingling of the populations of people um, who spoke those um, different languages uh, going back into the Viking period. It would, however, be really misleading, far from the whole picture and story, to emphasize only that particular um, range of language. One of the fascinating things about Norse influence on the English language is that we see it becoming visible, not just at the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, which is also the Viking period, um, not just in the Norman period, um, which is a period in which we can expect some of the um, sophisticated um, styles of Old English rhetoric to be um, becoming obsolete and more um, more demotic forms of language that will be influenced by Norse to come to the um, fore instead. Um, but also in the, the late medieval period, as late as the 14th century, we suddenly see a new variety of literary English appearing um, in works of literature, especially from northern England, where suddenly we're seeing a massive increase in the Norse-influenced vocabulary with words that we had no idea were being used regionally in England um, before that point. It's not the case. There's no reason to believe these are only being borrowed from Scandinavian that late. They had probably existed in a locally spoken variety of English for centuries um, before this point. Um, but then in, in great works of Middle English literature, like the works of the Garwain poet, uh, who's most famous for the romance Sir Garwain and the Green Knight, great deal of new Norse um, vocabulary comes in there. Particularly interesting example, just to, to give a very clear example of this, um, is as I think it's in the third or the fourth line um, of Sir Garwain and the Green Knight, we get an unusual word for man is used. It's a word that tulk, T-U-L-K, um, it's spelt there. Now, 
I referred before to the lack of reference to translators and interpreters being used um, between um, Norse and English. But actually, this word tulk um, goes back to a, an old Norse word, tulker, um, which is a word for a translator. It's related to a verb tulka, which means to translate um, or interpret. Um, what's even more fascinating about that is that so far as we know, um, the origins of that particular word um, are not in Scandinavia, um, but in fact they emerge out of the interaction, the interface between Scandinavian and Slavonic speakers um, in Eastern Europe, because we do actually um, find uh, it's rather a historic word um, in Russian, Belarusian, uh, Ukrainian, Turk, um, which it's, it actually means something very similar to our modern English word talk, T-A-L-K. Um, and um, that seems to have been borrowed as a Slavonic word um, into Old Norse, comes all the way through Scandinavia and ends up in England. So clearly they, they did have a knowledge of translating and interpreting um, between Scandinavian and English, but it certainly wasn't something that was very prominent there. In terms of the Norse system of writing, that's one thing that has interested me a, a great deal. What is sort of the sort of an introduction to the Norse system of writing? In in how does one end up with different kinds of of runes? I mean, you have the Futhark, the, the Elder Futhark. Yes, indeed, it's it is a large and complicated system. I think we would honestly say that we cannot be 100% certain what the origins of the runic script are. It is an alphabetic script, which basically means that there are letters as we understand them and an attempt to have one particular letter to represent each of the distinctive sounds um, within the language, both consonants um, and vowels. And we would usually contrast that sort of alphabetical writing script with, um, for instance, syllabic scripts where we have symbols that represent individual syllables. And then we get some of the more um, complex scripts such as the Chinese, Japanese um, forms of script where they are more like um, pictograms, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs too, we're seeing a more complex representation of um, what is spoken there. So we've got to look to the alphabetic scripts that are around in Europe um, for the origins of the uh, runic script. And while there have been some rather more fanciful theories suggesting it goes a great deal further back before the earliest recorded forms we've got, we're essentially looking at a situation where we have to decide between the influence of the, um, the Latin script, a script we usually refer to as Roman, um, but that is our script, in essence, um, for the one we use to write English, um, or the Greek script, um, which was used in a very influential um, culture, but very much down in um, South um, Eastern Europe. Um, but a script which has been the um, is essentially the source um, of the Cyrillic script, 
and interestingly is the script that was adopted by the first um, Germanic speaking language group to um, start writing its language down, um, who, who were the Goths. Um, now, I'm amongst a group of people who um, believe that the evidence that runes were derived from contacts between Germanic speaking peoples um, and the literate Latin west of Europe and, and central Europe, that that is the source of the runic script, that that is most likely. That having been said, we have to recognize there are a minority of the runes, um, the rune that is used to represent the sound th or the, a rune we call thorn, where it seems far and away um, easiest to derive it from a Greek letter than from anything that's available in Latin. So there could indeed have been two separate sources um, impacting on the runes and, and behind the development of the runes at the same time. Um, the earliest examples of runic script we've got are dated to the second half of the second century AD. They are from southern Scandinavia. They're from the area um, of Denmark. From then onwards, we have quite a lot of runic inscriptions early on in Denmark, spreading up into Norway as well, southern Sweden in addition. We do have continental um, runic inscriptions. Most of them are dating from between the 5th um, and the 7th century, so they really do seem to appear um, a little bit later. In the very east of Europe, this Gothic group, we have a very small number of inscriptions there, um, some of them apparently going back earlier, possibly to the 4th century. Um, there is new archaeological evidence coming out all the time um, from areas like the Ukraine, from Poland and the like. And so we may very well see quite a change with new evidence um, appearing there. Britain was effectively abandoned by the Roman Empire at the very beginning of the 5th century uh, AD and then um, Germanic settlers, Germanic-speaking settlers, unquestionably moved in. Some debate over just how many of them there actually were. But um, the culture, the whole identity of a large part of Britain changed from Celtic and Latin to Germanic. Um, and these people brought the runic script in with them. Now, the Germanic language that was spoken by these people rapidly started developing and changing quite radically to become a very early form of the English language. And with those changes in the English language, we also see that the runic script that is being used in Britain or in England, as we can actually refer to it from this time onwards, is also being adapted. So we have one really very early inscription um, from the late 5th century. Um, it's on a gold pendant, a, an object called a bracteate, um, which has a particular letter form on it, which represents a development um, in the pronunciation um, of Germanic, um, which it's not unique to 
um, England because it's also found in Frisia. It's, there's good reason to think it was represented on the northern continent at the same time, but it's something that distinguishes what we consider to be the Anglo-Saxon style of runic writing from the Scandinavian style of uh, runic writing. It's a sound sequence which in an earlier form would have been an, which becomes a, a very nasalized on um, vowel. It is written in a different way um, in this particular writing system. Um, and we then have six centuries at least of development of the um, Anglo-Saxon runic tradition. It develops in its own form. It be falls under influence of Latin literacy when Christianity is introduced to England. So it has completely different role as a writing system that the Scandinavian uh, runic system has. The Scandinavian runic system itself goes through a very dramatic transformation precisely at the same time as the um, Scandinavian language undergoes that dramatic transformation in the 7th and 8th centuries, whereby we, we move into what we would start to recognize um, as Old Norse. Um, and this is the transformation that is usually referred to as the distinction between the older and the younger Futhark. The Futhark, it's a name that is used simply taking the sound values of the first six letters in the runic alphabet, which are F, U, Th, O, R, K, um, gives us Futhark. It's nicely pronounceable, so we use that as the name of the alphabet. What happens to that um, Scandinavian um, Futhark um, is that it becomes something that is really surprisingly more cryptic. There are reasons for this in the changes um, of the language, but there also seems to have been almost a deliberate um, reform, an agreement to write things in a way that meant you really had to understand um, the strange spelling system and the language it was representing in order to be able to read it. I would say this is extremely like modern text messaging writing, whereby the pronoun you is represented just by putting in the vowel um, graph for you. People use lots and lots of abbreviations like lol, L-O-L, for laugh out loud, and we'll now actually use that as a word in, instead. So what happens with the younger Futhark is that a, a quite a significant number of distinctions that existed um, in the older Futhark are abandoned, so that it makes do with, I think it's only three or four vowels, even though there are many more vowels uh, within the language. It no longer distinguishes um, the letters that we would regard as G and K, G and K uses the same letter for both of those, the same letter for B and P um, as well. It's um, D and T equally as simply confused. Um, so that when in this runic system you want to refer to England, um, which is something that comes up in runic inscriptions from the um, Viking period, 
Um, the only way they can spell this within the system is to put in the uh, letters which we would usually recognize as I-K-L-T, which looks like a sort of iklut, and that represents England um, for you. You really do have to understand the code of the system in order to be able to interpret it. What we then see um, as we come to the end of the Viking period and Scandinavia itself then is going through the form of influence that England underwent back in the late 6th, 7th and 8th centuries. In other words, it becomes part of Europe culturally. The church is introduced into Scandinavia and with the church comes Latin literacy um, and Roman literacy. Not only eventually do we see the Roman script system introduced into Scandinavia, but we also see this Scandinavian younger Futhark being developed, being brought back in line with a standard European alphabetical script by having um, the letters that it had previously abandoned being reintroduced to the script system. Um, they tend not to be reintroduced by going back to the older runic forms that had been available, but new runic forms are developed. And very often it's a system that involves adding dots to the existing runes um, so you can distinguish a k from a g. Um, basically, the sound g um, in the new system will be the old k rune, but with a dot. Um, added onto it. It seems very complex, and indeed it is, but it's something that keeps the runic alphabet functioning for several centuries yet within Scandinavia. It remains in use more or less throughout the Middle Ages in Scandinavia. Well, the last question I'll ask you today, Dr. Hines, is this. Is there any notable examples of the, and indeed the oldest examples of this kind of Old Norse literature that really is gives us a, a window, gives historians a window into um, sort of this language written down for the first time, literature created in Old Norse for the first time? Uh, that really is an interesting question because when we get these scripts um, being used um, for the first time, very often we work very, very hard at interpreting the texts that are in front of us. And when we've done so, the result is, is so banal, it's a massive disappointment. You know, they, they are extremely short, a few letters. They seem to be personal names or even just giving us the label uh, the, of, of something that it is. The number of examples of simple bone combs we've got, which in runes have got the word comb written on them. Um, is extraordinary. So we're not really seeing literature to begin with. We do get some very interesting imaginative things uh, coming through there. Um, there is one particular um, inscription, though, which is the so-called um, Egya stone from Norway, probably to be dated to the 7th century. It's um, the dating has to be based on the state of the language that we can see there, the degree of development. Uh, it's an interform between the older and the younger Futhark there, and also the art history. We have a particular motif um, represented on it, a particular an armed warrior 
riding on his horse is, is represented there of a style that we can date um, after a fashion. And this has a much more extensive inscription on it. It's a commemorative inscription. It is really quite mystical, but it is in fact effectively written in verse. Um, we can recognize it as having the metrical features that then survive for centuries, and they are metrical features that come through in Old Norse. We would say, and in fact, it's the very earliest piece of Old Norse poetry um, we've got recorded for us. So it's an incredibly important find from Western Norway. Um, it's in the museum in Bergen. Um, in Norway can be seen then books could have been written on it. There are, uh, obviously, there'll be images. It'll be readily accessible um, through websites and so on. And I'm sure we can add to this podcast um, suitable links for people to be able to see it. Um, so, you know, I think if there's one thing I would really point to, that is probably the most intriguing and important one to look at. Um, another one that I am really very excited about, and I'm excited about um, because of the parallels that it allows me to draw between Scandinavia um, and England as early as the 8th century, um, is the fact that from the town of Reba, which is a very early port on the west coast of um, Denmark, it's on the North Sea, there was found there a piece of human skull, which seems extremely macabre, which had a hole drilled through it. So it could be hung up, it could be perhaps worn, or it could be nailed up on a post. Um, and that had a runic inscription um, on it. And the runic inscription was a form of charm. It invoked the gods, it invokes um, Odin and a god who is referred to as High Tyr. And then it says, We want help for a character whose name is probably Bur, might be Burri. Um, we can't be too certain about them. And he's being, um, he's being assisted against a particular affliction. And this affliction appears to be identified also in a rather folkloristic terms as something that a dwarf has um, imposed upon him. The affliction is known as um, dwarf. You know, not only is this a very fascinating um, find in its own right, um, dated to the relatively early 8th century, um, but within the last couple of years, um, we found an inscription in Norfolk in England, which also has on it very, very simply, the words dwarf is dead is written on it. You know, we've got rid of the dwarf. It's another charm to um, help people protect themselves um, ag against this affliction um, of dwarf. So it's showing us that we've got a common way of understanding across the North Sea um, between Scandinavia um, and England um, around the same time. We really are looking at a a widespread common culture here and not just one-off, strange, little, esoteric actions by a few people who were literate in some way. So 
those are perhaps the the examples that I would you know draw people's attention to as perhaps the most exciting things to look into and to think about. Yes, those those are indeed very exciting, and I will of course put links uh, where people can learn more about them in the description of this episode. Well, Dr. John Hines, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you here on the podcast, and I'll put links as well in the description to uh, your work and where people can find you. Great. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to learn more about the Vikings and the Old Norse world, visit my friends at Ancient History Encyclopedia and read their excellent array of articles on many aspects of the Viking Age at ancient.eu. And of course, you will find links to these articles in the description of this episode. <laughs>